welcome back. Today, I am here with David Hughes, and we're going to talk about two topics. The first is his involvement and interest in remote viewing. And then the second is the tantalizing fact that Sony had a paranormal division and may or may not still have it. So, David, welcome. Thank you very much, Sean. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. So for the audience, can you just give a little bit of a brief background on, you know, your bio, where you're from, you know, how, how you became a VP at, at Sony, et cetera? Okay. So I grew up in Canada. And when I was 17, I went to Japan as an exchange student. I went to university and graduate school in Japan. And when I finished my master's, I did a master's in management science. I went to work for Sony Corporation in Tokyo, and we will come back to that, I'm sure. And I worked in digital technology there for five, six years. In 1998, I moved to New York to Sony Music. And I worked on digital music for about 10 years for Sony. I ran the department to sell music on the internet between 1998 and 2006. And then I moved to our trade organization in Washington, D.C., where I was a chief technology officer for about 15 years. And that brings us up to about 18 months ago when I became an independent consultant. And I still, I still work on the same issues, technology issues, artificial intelligence, metadata, royalty payments, all the kind of things that make the digital music economy run. So that's what I do. But somewhere along the way, I moved to New York in 1998. And in late 99, 2000, one of my coworkers actually told me, oh, I have this friend. You have to meet him. His name is David Morehouse. And he wrote this book that was at the time, I think, uh, had just been a New York Times seller, Psychic Warrior. So uh, I started reading the book and started talking about remote viewing in the book. And I was fascinated. And I had been interested in, how should we say? scientific exploration of unexplained phenomena, you know? Mm -hmm. And this seemed like exactly what I was looking for. You know, these are hardcore scientists who uh, did research into paranormal stuff. I got to one point in the book where Dave explained about remote viewing and how the coordinates work and stuff. And I said, oh my God, I got to learn how to do this. So I picked up the phone and I called him. And I said, when's your next class? And he said, well, my next class is in two weeks in Norway. I said, okay, I'm on a plane. I'm coming. He goes, no, 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 no. Why don't you wait a few weeks to come to San Diego where I have all my equipment and my, you know, he was based in San Diego at the time. I said, come and let's just, you know, do it right. So around January, 2000, I think, I went and took my first coordinate remote viewing class from, from Dave. And then that year I took extended remote viewing and coordinate remote viewing again. And I started auditing the classes and I started to help Dave teach. And over the course of the years, we became close friends and I'm sitting here under his range of Italian <laughs> insignia <laughs> in his house today here in Florida. And that's how I got into remote viewing. And I really, really enjoyed the fact that the way that they approached remote viewing was very much two aspects of it. The first one was that it was really came out of a bed of science. You know, these mm -hmm. were laser physicists who were doing the research. And and you're talking about Hal Putoff and Hal Russell Targ. Targ at the Stanford Research Institute in Palo Alto, yeah, in, in, the, in the 1970s. And that's the one part. And then the other part was that somewhere along the way, the CIA, Defense Intelligence Agency, and other funders of these programs, said, we want you to write a manual so that we can teach our people to do this remote viewing, to transcend time and space with their minds and go out there and collect useful information for us. And we don't, you know, the, 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 the military and the intelligence, intelligence community was not particularly interested in bringing psychics into their program. What they wanted to do is they wanted to figure out a way to select people that were already inside their community, mm -hmm. figure out two things. How do we find people who can do this? And then the second one was, how do we train people to do this? And the result was a, a military style remote viewing manual that 
and the manual that Dave uses when he teaches. And I still, about once a year up in Vancouver, I teach a, I teach a coordinate remote viewing class and I use all Dave's materials and do it in coordination with Dave. And the manual that we use is, is basically an enhanced and annotated version of that manual that was created back in SRI days. And we figured out over the course of years, first Dave started to figure out as he started to teach after he came out of the military, he started to teach first, he taught pro bono to law enforcement. Mm -hmm. So many people that wanted to learn, he started to teach the general public. And I guess about a, a year after he started teaching the general public is when I took my first class, maybe, I don't know the time frame exactly, but, and we have figured out how to teach it more efficiently, how to teach it better. And uh, Dave and I were just talking over dinner the night before last about this. And, you know, I think that a, a 40 hour remote viewing class now, at the end of that, many of those viewers are as good at remote viewing as some of the people that were in the, for example, in the remote viewing unit at Fort Meade had been a, after weeks or maybe months of training. Because through trial and error, you figured out what's important and how to teach it and how to assign the target and how to provide the feedback to the remote viewers to make this whole process of learning more efficient. And I guess that comes back to my second reason for really liking remote viewing, which is it's a learned skill. It doesn't mean that everybody that learns remote viewing is going to be equally good at it. Mm -hmm. No skill is like that. I like to compare it to music because I'm a music guy. I'm not a musician, never was a professional musician, but I spent my career in the music industry. Everybody can take music lessons. And unless you are, you know, tone deaf, which could happen in a few cases. And I, I have a theory that it happens in a few cases for remote viewing too, but we can come back to why I think. I definitely want to, I definitely want to hear that after. Well, yeah, yeah, just put, make it, put a pin in that. I, I have my own yeah. opinion that, and, and you can ask, Dr. Morehouse, if he agrees or disagrees with you on that. But, but the fact of the matter is everybody can learn how to do this. And the same way you can teach people to play an instrument, you can teach people to play a piano and you can teach them to play well enough to enjoy the music and to make it enjoyable. Same way we can teach people to remote view to the, to the level that they are getting results where they are going to make the shift from suspecting or hoping that this is possible to believing that it's possible. And that's where we want to get them to at the beginning of the class. We used to spend a lot of time on the history and science of remote viewing before we ever taught any of the protocols. Because what they realized in the military when they were trying to come up with a list of who to recruit, it came down to one factor, one main factor. Do you believe that remote viewing is possible. They would explain it to the candidates and the people that said, no, absolutely not. I do not believe remote viewing is possible. We have five senses. That's it. There's nothing. Mm -hmm. more. Those people, no matter how hard you teach them, Sean, they don't learn. But the people that go in with an open mind and the more open-minded they are, I mean, there are other things. I will say there, there is a correlation between just general intelligence, whether it's academic smarts or street smarts. Smarter people learn to do things more quickly. But the real important thing here is that people who believe it's possible, who go through the training, eventually they will have a successful target. And the results will be statistically anomalous to the to an order of magnitude that we would say is, you know, 10,000 to one chance, a million to one chance. And once you've had one of those results yourself, you shift from believing to knowing. And that's the purpose of our, that's the purpose that I have in my mind when I teach remote viewing class, to get people to the point where they can do a remote viewing session, even if they only do one and they, get a result that convinces them that remote viewing is for real, that it worked. You're not just your five senses. You are something more. You have a connection with the universe or however you want to explain it. it so the fact that it's teachable and based in science 
That's what attracted me to and still does to this very day. I did lots of other exploration. I personally, even before I met David Morehouse, I had made an effort to try to try to meet people who were purported to be psychic mm-hmm. just because I was curious. You know, one of my friends said, oh, I have this friend who's psychic. I said, are they a professional psychic? Oh, no, no. But they just, they know stuff. I said, can you introduce me? I'd love to talk to them. So I started my like unofficial research in the late nineties. And then once I got into the remote viewing community, I, I really focused on remote viewing, but kept looking at, you know, all the stuff surrounding it. What I really came though to realize is that people who are naturally psychic, very often they have a flash of inspiration. So the example I always give is somebody who's a naturally psychic person. And I believe that those people do exist they will get a flash and they'll get, oh, I saw a picture. It was a sign. It was a road sign. It had a number, 76. Maybe it was Route 76 or or maybe it was Route 176 or 67. I'm not quite sure. And there was a stop sign with bullet holes in it, which narrows it down to every stop sign in rural America. Right. And, but that's what they get. They got a flash. The remote viewing protocol was designed very specifically to start by what we describe as opening the aperture to the target very slowly. And the analogy I use is the remote viewer is in a dark closet. Pupils are dilated and they're in this dark closet. If you just slam the door open and they get hit with a flash of light, they get an image for a fraction of a second and then they're blinded. And the remote viewing protocols are designed to open the door very slowly to establish the technical term we use is to establish contact target. We talk about mm-hmm. signal line, content. but to establish a signal line between the target or the source of information about the target. And that's a separate, that's a whole separate discussion about where does the information come from when you it's like the holographic matrix field and things right. like that. I mean, that's my personal belief is that whether you call it a holographic field or the, they called it the matrix years before the can't leave Wachowski brothers movie matrix, they, the, in the unit, they called it the matrix, the Akashic records, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. all the information of everything that's ever happened. And theoretically, everything that will happen is stored there. And how do you access that? Again, that's a separate discussion. So the protocols were designed to open the door very slowly so that you wouldn't get blinded, so you wouldn't get overwhelmed. Because when people get overwhelmed, what happens is they lose contact with the target. Now, if they're naturally psychic, they may have developed their own protocol, so to speak, for reconnecting to the target over and over and keep getting flashes. But what we didn't want is flashes. We want, we want a constant connection. And the military units, and some remote viewers still, they would often use a monitor who was in the next room talking through a microphone and, and queuing and would be asking. Now, the protocols are designed to actually cue the viewer themselves. So when you get on a target, you start by looking for the most general information first. In fact, the first question in CRV protocol that a remote viewer asks themselves, for lack of a better term, is, is the target fundamental? The gestalt of the target, the the, the, the primary aspect of the target, is it man-made or is it natural? And And that was the most general binary thing that scientists could come up with, just to split it in two. And then to keep going, they came up with six subsets, which was land, water, land, water interface, mountain, structure, or life. And the second thing the viewer does is just try to get an impression, their first impression of which one of those six it is to slowly establish contact. And then they go down a list of attributes about the target, starting with the most general, When I teach it, I always start with colors first. What are the primary colors present at the target? And when they're finished sensing for the colors, what are the primary textures present at the target? And when they're finished textures, then you move on to all kinds of 
things, smells and tastes and, you know, other things. And then eventually we start to get into the more physical aspect of it and dimensionals. Is the target big or small? Give me a scale. Is it a bread box or are we talking about something the size of a football field? And, and then get into shapes. And once we get into shapes, that actually leads into another stage where the, eventually the uh, remote viewer starts to do sketching and we start to get the sketches. And when we're teaching remote viewing, that's the most exciting part. Of, you know, the target that I use as an example target when I'm teaching a class, because I never use it as a target, is the Eiffel Tower. But if you were using that for your calibration target is what, what we would call a target where the assigner knows a lot about the target so that after the session is over, the viewers can get valuable feedback. They can know what they hit on, what they got correct and what they got wrong, basically. So if it's the Eiffel Tower and you start to get people sketching things that are shaped like triangles or you know, it's common, for example, I had students draw a picture of an umbrella because they saw this image of the Eiffel Tower and then their mind turned it, you know, a little handle at the bottom. They turned it into a closed umbrella, closed umbrella. Mm. Uh, but you could see how that would happen. They, they saw for a fraction of a second this, this image of the Eiffel Tower and then their mind wanted to put form and function to this shape. And one of the main things that we learn in the remote viewing is how to stop your imagination from embellishing and just draw the raw image, what we call pure viewing data. How do you get the pure viewing data down on the paper? So anyway, that was a lot of background about remote viewing by way of explaining why I was so attracted to remote viewing in the early days. And then of course, after I did the first class, I had my first rock my world moment target where I had a sketch, which was a very accurate sketch of the target that I did not know. It was a blind target. I knew nothing about. All I was given was two four-digit numbers as coordinates. And I got this sketch and it would matched up with the, I had multiple sketches that matched up to multiple parts of the target. Mm -hmm. And from that day forward, I never doubted whether remote viewing worked. I knew it worked. I, I saw it. And of course I've had many, you know, targets since then, but as with anything in life, you remember the first time. And I remember that first time so vividly. And then I took great pleasure in sharing that with other people and watching the students go through the aha moment is just great fun. And sometimes it's life-changing for them. Very life-changing in some cases. We have students come back for the subsequent classes and they say, oh, well, since I did remote viewing, I quit my job and went back to graduate school or I got married or I got divorced or I changed, I moved cities or I reconciled with my parents or whatever big life changes. And they say, it's because my view on life changed. Remote viewing caused a fundamental change in, in how I see the world. You know, so that's a, that's a fun and interesting part of it too, you know, getting to see that. So I've been involved since, I guess, about 2001, slowly helping Dave as a group leader and then helping him teach some of the classes. Some of the lecturing is very technical, especially in mm -hmm. and it gets quite repetitive for Dave to do it after years. So I would do the protocols and teach the scientific protocol part. And more philosophical and esoteric parts, Steve, generally do himself. It's the fun part, let's call it. But I always enjoyed that. And then in 2005, six, I started teaching on my own. And then we all stopped teaching for a while. In post 9 11, the world changed a little bit. And in the past few years, we sort of started again, you know? And I've been teaching with a group called the Core Potentials up in Vancouver with a Becca Nielsen and Britta Nielsen's, you know, they teach yoga, meditation, nutrition, things like that. And because for a while there, Dave Morehouse's health was very poor. He stopped teaching. Thank God he's recovered now. And so I started teaching at that point just to keep the ball rolling, you know, so that students who wanted to, to, to learn could. 
and never regretted it. So anyway, that was the longest answer you'll ever get from anybody <laughs> other than Dr. David Morehouse. Yeah, his answer might have been two hours long. <laughs> I hope he's listening. Um, I can see him through the window, but he I'm not sure he can hear his recast. Well, it's, it's, I mean, he knows, he knows. So going back to a tantalizing comment that you made earlier, you said one of the things that made it impossible to learn was an unwillingness to believe, but you said you had a theory and, and I'll you know be very clear. It's an opinion and a theory, right? And it's your personal opinion, but what, what other things you said, there's, there's, you know, there may be another barrier to learning. What is that barrier? What is that difference? Like the tone deaf thing you mentioned. Yeah, no, the tone deaf thing is the only time that I have observed. I think it's theoretically possible for somebody to be tone deaf to remote viewing. The only because I have met a couple of people in my life who are tone deaf to music. So if it's possible to be tone deaf, in the literal sense of musicality. It's probably possible that you, there are some people out there who can't learn remote viewing, but it's just a theoretical. My personal experience of meeting people who were unsuccessful in learning remote viewing, and it's very rare, were people who were convinced it was impossible and got somehow involved with remote viewing with the intention of proving that remote viewing doesn't work. And I'm okay. that's your if that's the intention that you have from the beginning. Now I've had highly skeptical people, you know, in my classes, and Dave's had hundreds of people. You know, he says that's twenty five thousand people going through his classes. I've taught hundreds of hundreds of people, maybe. Usually together, I should clarify, usually when we're teaching people. But of all those people, even the highly skeptical people, once you explain to them the history and how it came about and the scientific methodology that was used to both research it and develop the protocols, you can effectively break down that skepticism to the point where they get they get to a point where they believe it might be. Awesome. And if you can get them that far and they learn the protocols and they're serious about it and they do exactly what you say, they will have a successful session eventually. And they do. And ironically, some of the initially skeptical students do become some of the best remote viewing students. They're usually quite scientific minded. Mm-hmm. People that come from, well, I would guess we, we, I would, I don't know the better term than to say from the new age community, they come in open-minded, not skeptical, but sometimes they feel like the, the approach and the protocol is very structured. It's very scientific. And by definition, these people are much more, the term my mom would have used was loosey goosey. Right, they go with the flow, they're creative, right. Give people, whatever. And then when you tell them, no, you have to do it exactly this way. But do I really? I already, I'm already naturally psychic. Can't you just tell me kind of how to do it? It's like, no, you got to follow the protocols exactly. And as I tell my kids, you learn the rules you, for life. You learn the rules, you follow the rules, you understand why the rules are in place, and then you are in a position to decide when and if to ignore the rules. Same thing with the protocols. If you understand the protocols and you understand exactly why they're there, eventually many experienced remote viewers come up with their own modified protocols. The most common of this is in coordinate remote viewing where people are in a sort of alpha brainwave state and they're quite awake, but meditative, but quite awake. And we're writing everything down in coordinate remote viewing. And then in the next level of extended remote viewing, 
got an eye mask and earplugs and we're trying to go for a deep, much deeper brainwave state, maybe even a theta brainwave state, almost, almost asleep. You know, you have to stay awake mm-hmm. to go through the protocols in your mind, but you want to be as deep as you can. Then there are many viewers, if you master both of those, that I personally use a hybrid version. I use a kind of an extended remote viewing where I'm in this deep meditative state. But what I find is I can't remember if I do a session for 45 minutes, I spend so much of my energy trying to remember the first half of the session that what happens is my consciousness, whether this is true or not, this is how I imagine it, shifts from the right side of my brain where remote viewing is sort of receiving all these signals to the left side of my brain. And the more you are in the left side of your brain, the worse your session is going to be. So what I found was while I'm doing this, trying to get in a deep brainwave state, if I sort of purge the information and write down some stuff on a paper and then go back in, it's not the best way. It's not the way that's taught, but that's what works for me. So then I don't have to remember it. Once I've written it down, I can forget about it and focus on collecting new information, get collecting new data. So I don't know. Even re- I don't even remember what your question was, Sean, but hopefully that was an interesting answer. No, no, I think I think you covered the question was what were some of the characteristics that, that made it unlearnable for some people? And it seems that the belief in the possibility of it and, working and, yes. is and there. there. And there are some people, much to my surprise, so there's a new there's a new book by Annie Jacobson, new, I don't know, three years old, something called Phenomena where she did quite a lot of in-depth research on ESPN, particularly remote viewing. Interviewed Russell Targ, helped put off, and Dale Graff and others. Some of those remote viewers from the unit that Dave Morehouse was in at Fort Meade even came forward and said, you know, after all our experience, we really think that there's a natural psychic ability that some people have and others don't. And Dave and I so firmly disagree with this because we've seen people come in that have absolutely no inkling. They've never had a psychic anything in their life. They come in and they learn the protocols and they become wonderful remote viewers. And so I think it's very much can be a learned skill and that anybody, you know, with the possible, with the theoretical exception of somebody who might be dumb. <laughs> but I mean, we're talking about, what is that? In the case of music, one in 10,000 people, you know? Yeah, that was actually my next question. Like, what, what was the statistical? I don't, I don't know the numbers, but let's, let's assume yeah. those lines. Yeah, well, you have thousands of students and they all learn. Any, everybody who comes in with an open mind learns to remote view. And some are much better than others. But it works. And the other thing that's really valuable in a remote viewing class, this is the thing where I really believe that if possible, doing it in a class with other people and ideally a physical class, although even with the online classes, and you'll understand why it's kind of okay, doing it with a group where you see all your classmates' results is much better than trying to learn to remote view on your own. Because even if you, quote unquote, miss the target, if the people in your class, if some of them hit the target, then you realize, okay, well, I'm not going to hit the target every time. This is, this is tough stuff, you know? But you see their results, and then that reinforces the fact that, oh, yes, this remote viewing does work. And, okay, it didn't work for me in this session, but maybe it will next time. So I'm a big really big fan of people taking classes in groups or joining remote viewing in the community. There's lots of remote viewing groups where people do targets together as a group and they, they do the target blind. Nobody knows except the assigner of the coordinates, what the target is. And it has to be a calibration target where we know what it is. It's not just, you know, some unknown target, like searching for a missing person or something, which is something we can come back to. Then when they share their results, one of the amazing things that'll happen is you'll have two or more people from the class 
with the same sketch or the same words or the same description. And then you start to say, okay, well, statistically, the fact that one person got a sketch of the Eiffel Tower, that's kind of amazing. But we had a class with 20 people and multiple people had a sketch of something that looks like the Eiffel Tower. Now, what are the odds of that? And that reinforces the, you know. So even though it is possible to learn on your own, I really encourage people to take a class. And, and, but they do have to be careful. There's lots of people teaching what they call remote viewing. And I'm sure that David Morehouse has spoken about this and will again. Has yeah, yeah. Like, uh, what's the? How should one what, remote viewing or whatever his list is? Yeah, yeah. When somebody when somebody is looking at taking classes, what how what are the kind of the telltale signs? Should they look at the lineage of the remote viewer, i.e., who they trained with, etc.? Is that the first check, or is there? You know, I mean, I was a martial arts kid. I started karate when I was thirteen. That's how I ended up in Japan because of my interest in martial arts. And lineage is one of those things we talk about. To me, much more important than that is if they're using, if they're using the protocols that were developed by SRI and by the military and not some kind of simplified version of it, that would be the first thing. I personally have looked at a lot of the different teachings and there's, you know, in the old days, Joe McMonigle and others were affiliated with Monroe Institute and other places. And, you know, and, and coming from me, maybe it doesn't mean much. Everybody should do their own research. But I think the protocols that Dave Morehouse uses, and in particular, the book that he wrote about coordinate remote viewing, which is sort of the manual, is very much based on the protocols that were developed for the military remote viewers. As as far as I know, he never uh, ever deleted anything from the original protocol. He supplemented a lot. He added a lot of footnotes and explanations and examples, but he never sort of took anything out. Other people have tried to simplify the protocol. Oh, we don't need this. We don't need this. We'll shorten it. We'll make it. We don't need a 40-hour class. I can teach you in one day. That kind of thing. I would be highly suspicious you know, it's, you know, I, whenever somebody says they're going to, you know, teach you something that takes a certain amount of time and they're going to teach you in some fraction of that time, be suspicious. You know, It's a real commitment. But if you have the time, 40 hours, for example, to take the first coordinate remote viewing class, that's the best way to start. You know? Now, when you teach the, when you teach these classes and when you first took the took the class after you learned the skill set, what did you use or what sort of applications did you use remote viewing for in either your life, your day job, et cetera? And what do students use it for as well? Right. So, you know, how is, how do people use remote viewing? I will be honest. I don't spend a lot of time, you know, listening to a 30 minute cool down tape and then getting a deep meditative state and doing a remote viewing session and coming out and writing my session summary and following all the protocols. But what the students find and what I found was, and when I'm asked, why should I study remote viewing? I say, the main reason to study is because you will learn to trust your intuition. It will it will reinforce the idea that it is okay to trust your gut. And, you know, at one point, Dave Morehouse was teaching law enforcement exclusively when he first came out of the military. And he tells a story about how the, the cops asked him to come back and teach a second class. And he was so excited because he thought, okay, you know, these detectives are going to get in a deep meditative state and remote view and they're going to solve crimes. And in fact, he said, you know, are you doing that? And they said, no, we're cops. We don't have time to lie on the floor in the dark. And get <laughs> what you taught us was that it's okay for us to trust our intuition. Now, of course, all police work is based on intuition. Mm -hmm. 
whether it's, you know, do you follow a perpetrator down a back alley or call for backup? Or is it, do you ask the follow-up question? Why did that person use that unusual word when I asked them where they were last Thursday? They, why, did, why did they say, that's not a normal way to answer that question. I think I'm going to ask a follow-up question. So deep down, the, all these cops, soldiers, other psychologists, healers, you know, there's lots of people who they go like, wait a minute, I got a follow-up question. For you. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen the TV show House? You know, he's like Sherlock Holmes. He hears something strange he f- and he uses his intuition. He goes, wait a minute, that didn't sound right. Yes, follow-up question. And I think that that's the most valuable because once you come to trust your intuition, then it's working for you all the time. And every time you're making a business decision or a life decision, you have that inkling of a gut feeling and it's easy to ignore. But remote viewing helps you understand not to ignore it. And, you know, as far as application, I would say that we have another thing that's similar to remote viewing called thought incubation, which is mm-hmm. using viewing protocols to problem solve. And that's, that is much more akin to what I used in my career, trying to solve technical problems in the music industry, for example, or dealing with piracy and distribution and all kinds of things. And even today, and I think that if you understand that very simply shifting your brainwave state into a lower brainwave state and being in that creative, non-critical, you know, all ideas are good ideas until you sort them out later kind of brainwave state, and then try to problem solve in that state. And, you know, I, I, I think it's akin to what Hemingway said, you know, he said, write drunk, edit. So, and if you think in terms of left and right brain, when you're trying to problem solve, problem solve without any self-criticism. So that's the sort of that writing drunk. But then when it comes time to analyze all your ideas, then you want to be in the left side of your brain and you want to be highly critical and logical about, you know, Hey, what works, what doesn't. And so that's how I use it in my reading. I would say. Yeah. A last question on remote viewing. Hey, hey David. <laughs> Special guest. Areas of innovation in remote viewing has, I know you mentioned that in the manual things were added what sort of, you know, what's the leading edge right now? Or is it kind of still the standard protocols? Standard protocols. I would say the biggest one for me when I'm teaching is that the purpose of teaching remote viewing to somebody like Major David Morehouse when he was an operational remote viewer are a little bit different from my purposes for teaching remote viewing to students. And the the difference being that protocols get more and more complicated as you move through the stages because they're designed to get more and designed to get deeper and deeper into the target. And we more recently, like when I'm teaching, I tend to spend more time on the first two thirds of the coordinate remote viewing protocol, first four stages, and I spend less time on stage five and six. And that is because by the time they've got through all four, they've got to the point where they can sketch or draw a target and they can sense intangible things about a target. So some of the intangibles might be if a target was something like a Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, the first students might say, oh, well, I felt it was very touristic, which is not even mm-hmm. a real word in the dictionary, but it is actually a word that comes up quite often with remote viewing, because many of the targets we do are places like Notre Dame. The next person might say, no, 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 it's religious. It's not a tourist destination. It's a religious destination. And the third person says, no, you guys are wrong. It's a historic place. <laughs> of course, the reality is all three. they're all right. They're all correct. Right. Right. 
But I think that's funny watching them when they're sharing their feedback. And one of them is convinced it's religious. One of them is convinced it's a tourist destination. One of them convinced it's a star. And then, of course, part of the training is they realize, oh, yeah, it's, it's all of those things. This isn't a zero-sum game, you know? It's accumulative data that, you know. Okay. I think now let's shift to your time at Sony. And tell me about, A, how you became aware that this paranormal division existed. And then, B, what was it? How did it come about? And does it still exist? Right. Yeah. So I'll go sort of chronologically my own experience. In 1992, I graduated from graduate school in Japan, and I applied for a job with Sony Corporation in Tokyo. So January 1st, January 6th, actually, I think, 1993 was my first day at work, and I started working at Sony. And I was just working in the digital video division doing stuff. But we had an employee newsletter. And this is, remember, this is 93, so the internet and all that is, we had email, but we didn't have the World Wide Web. The Netscape web browser doesn't come out for two more years. So it was still like a printed newsletter that they would drop in your inbox. And while you're eating lunch or on your coffee break or whatever, you read through it. There's news about the award that the president of the company got or whatever. But at the back, there was something that was akin to almost like personal ads. and. One of those was a little ad that said, and this is only for employees, but you have to remember at this point, Sony Japan had about 20,000 employees, maybe. It's a big company. In 19. So this ad said, and the first one I read said, can you move a pencil without touching it? Something like that. And there was a little description, but basically, can you roll a pencil on the top of a table without touching it? If so, call the ESP Research Lab at at extension 1234. And I just remember thinking, what? That's crazy. That It wasn't so crazy that they were researching it. To me, it was crazy that they were recruiting people by putting this open ad to all the employees. It makes perfect sense, though. And so I remember seeing two of these ads. The first one I recall very precisely because it was, can you roll a pencil without touching it? And one of the subsequent ads was something about sensing colors or something like that. Can you sense the color of something? If if so, call or, or no, maybe there was one about rolling dice or something like that, you know. And so I thought, okay, that was interesting. But I didn't think too much of it. But once a year, Sony had an internal research and development fair where all the R&D departments, which is a lot of Sony actually, especially Sony headquarters in Tokyo, would present their latest projects, that their research and development or their product development and it was almost like a, a technology fair where everybody has their booths with their screens and their panels and everything. And the idea was that all the executives, top executives could walk around and they could sort of in one or two days, they could see all the research that was being done in the company. And then perhaps more importantly, the heads of all the divisions could go around and see what research was being done in other parts of Sony. So there's a digital camera guy and he's walking past and he sees somebody who's doing some kind of research on a sensor or something. He goes, oh, we could totally use that sensor to sense the distance for an autofocus on our digital camera. And suddenly there's this cross-pollination. And I believe that was really the underlying purpose of these fairs, which they still do to this day, every November, December in Tokyo. So I would go to these, all the employees were given, you know, sort of everybody takes a day off work to go. It's part of our job to know what's going on in the company. And in the early years of my time at Sony, 93, 4, 5, 6, maybe, the 
ESP Research Lab had a booth. And they were presenting the results of some of the research that they had done. And I believe their main purpose of having a booth was for recruiting purposes. They wanted to find mm-hmm. subjects who could do anything that might be unexplained by standard science. If you could do anything, you know, so, and they had a list of things. Can you move a compass without touching it? Can you light up a light bulb by holding it? All the kind of standard stuff that you would imagine. And they were asking people, can you do any of these things? If you can, please contact the head of the ESP research lab. You know, take a piece of paper and fill out a form or however they did it. I don't remember exactly. And they even had some sort of simulated demonstrations. Like you could take your hand, you could try. So they had a desk. The one that I remember them doing was they had these sort of tubes and inside the tubes, they had rolled up pieces of paper and there was multiple tubes. And inside each tube, the piece of paper had a different, was of a different color. But looking at it from the outside, you could not tell what was inside the tube. And then they asked the subjects to pick up the tube and then sense which color it is. Is this red, green, blue, or yellow? And then you would say, this one, I believe, is blue, or, you know, red, green, yellow, and they'd write down your score. And they were just sort of collecting data. Like I said, probably trying to recruit people. And I remember that specific one being at one of the ESP fairs was the rolled up colored paper inside. So then I got interested in it and I started asking around. And somebody explained to me, well, you know, in 1947, when Sony was created, founder of Sony, Akio Morita and Masaru Ibuka, they created a kind of constitution for the company. I can't think of a better. And charter, something like that. Like a charter. Yeah. And it was all the things that Sony is going to do. Now, these guys had come out of World War II. Japan, Akio Morita had had been a naval officer. He had been a scientist doing research on radar or some such thing during the war. But, you know, so we want to do things that are peaceful, that help mankind. And they had all these criteria for what kind of company Sony was going to be. But somewhere in the charter, they also had mentioned that they always wanted to relieve sort of time or in reality, resources, meaning money, to research two other fields. One of them that they were interested in was sort of biomechanics kind of stuff. They were very interested in things like acupuncture, shiatsu massage with, you know, pressure points, chiropractic, things that that science could not easily explain on the, and brainwave stuff. They were, oh, they were very interested in, in monitoring brainwave stuff. So they had one research lab that was the human physiology science lab or something. And the greatest thing about that was if you made an appointment as a employee, you could get free chiropractic and free shiatsu and free acupuncture. <laughs> Because these guys were doing research on the employees, you know. But the other part of the charter was that they were going to have a department in the company to research unexplained phenomena. They wanted to look at the boundaries of science to find things that science could not easily explain in the hopes that they would discover something that they could use to create revolutionary products. Now, I do know that some things did come out of the sort of biology and physiology lab, whatever the correct name for that lab was. They came up with a toothbrush, which was an electronic toothbrush, not an electric toothbrush. It was a toothbrush with a battery in it that put an electrical charge through your mouth when you were brushing. And I guess somehow the electric charge 
would break down or have the the uh, plaque release off of your teeth, and it probably ionizes your teeth and causes the charges. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. And so it was an ionizing toothbrush, and that was a real product that Sony sold for many many years. So some things did come out of that, but they had this what they called the ESP, what became known later as the ESP Research Lab. Now. As I said, I started to research more and more into this, and I had friends in the PR department and headquarters and so on. And eventually I was transferred in the headquarters into the CEO's office. So I was always kind of keeping my, you know, hey guys, every few months I think, does anybody know about this? So one thing we found was that in about 1986, Sony made a public announcement that they had an ESP research lab. I'm not sure how much, how long they had had it between the charter, maybe 1947 and 86. I suspect that they were doing some of this research, but perhaps they didn't have a laboratory department specifically for it. That was my, that was my conclusion. Mm -hmm. But in 1986, they announced that they had an ESP research lab. They funded it. They found a mathematician who I later got to meet. I met him through another project by, by, by chance. Uh, his name was Yoichiro, what was his name? Yoichiro Sako. And Sako-san was in charge of the ESP Research Lab. By the time I met him, between 86 and about 95 or so, that was his full-time job. And then sometime in the late 90s, his budget was reduced, he explained to me. And his ESP research was less than full time. So he was dabbling in other projects, which is how I met him on a video project. But he was a, he was a, a gifted mathematician with a degree from Tokyo University, the best, best university in Japan, probably, and a smart guy. So I met him, and I'll never forget in his office, behind his desk, he had a plexiglass box with various artifacts most of which were bent spoons. Mm. Yes, at one point, maybe before I was there or something, he probably had had an ad in the, in the employee newspaper that said, can you bend a spoon? <laughs> so he had all these bent spoons in this plexiglass box behind his desk. And so at that point, when I met him, he was specifically doing research on synesthesia, which is mm -hmm. thing that I would consider paranormal exactly, but like, like Tate hearing color and, you know, exactly. so people who associate a specific letter with a color or a specific word with a musical tone or, you know, all these different cross sense things, but he thought that that area was being and this is the only real discussion I had with Sako-san in any detail about the SP lab. He thought that that research, scientific research being done in synesthesia might give them some clues to more sort of ESP stuff. He thought that might be a gateway to the unexplained. Mm -hmm. so he, I think what he was looking for was stuff on the edge of science. And synesthesia seemed like kind of that kind of thing. Because they were doing, and he he actually published some papers, academic papers, on their research they did about synesthesia. And I remember that specifically because he made photocopies and mailed them to me through his inter through the interoffice mail. <laughs> I still have those to this day. But that was that was sort of the history. And you know, at, at the time that they announced it, they made a public announcement in 96. And then again, in, in the early nineties, there was some press coverage and so on. And, and they basically said something like, you know, what are you trying to accomplish? And they said, well, we're trying to push the boundaries on what science can explain. And at this stage in the game, it's hard to tell what we're going to find, but, you know, maybe we'll find some type of communication system, a way to transmit data from point A to point B that is different than the way we currently transmit data. They were specifically, you know, they were intentionally being vague <laughs> because they don't know what they're going to find. 
but they were really hoping that they would find something. And I think the big dream, the same way that the physiological guys ended up with some biosensor devices and the ionic toothbrush and stuff, I think the ESP research lab guys were really hoping that they would be able to turn at least one thing into a product. And if they mm-hmm. could, they would get a lot more funding and so on. I don't know that that ever happened, but they did do a lot of research. And I left Sony in Tokyo in June of 1998. At that point, as far as I know, Sakosan was still running the ESP research lab. I didn't really hear much about it after that. And I used to go back to Tokyo every December for the R&D. When I was at Sony Music in New York for about 10 years, I went back and he didn't have the booth after 1999, as far as I can recall. So his budget was probably reduced to the point where they were just doing a little bit. Now, I was told by Sako-san that because it's in the corporate charter, they can never shut down his department. That's what he told me. So if that's true, they're always going to keep a little research going in that space. But I think it was, you know, the director of the department half time with one or two employees. It's, it was very hard to justify, especially when you mm-hmm. are tough, but the founders believed you've got to keep looking on the edge because that's where you find the exciting stuff. And I, I really respect that, that spirit, even though it was hard for them to, you know, hard for them to, to justify on, on a profit and loss statement, perhaps. Anyway, that's a quite a long explanation about ESP Research Lab at Sony, but that's what I know. No, I think that's I think it's helpful though. It provides a lot of context about how it works, how it you know how it might not work, and why these things might not survive, right? Particularly in a like downsizing environment. Exactly. And there are other organizations or institutions that are probably better positioned for this. Noetic Institute, which you know Edgar Mitchell and others were uh, instrumental in helping to create others, that were specifically designed where the only charter they have is to explore that which other science can't explain, as opposed to trying to be inside a publicly held company with shareholders, <laughs> where... There's always going to be somebody saying you're you're wasting money on what? Right. Right. Well, it's it's funny you mentioned Edgar Mitchell because the, in the recent UAP hearings, there was mention of this Wilson memo, which is, again, I, the provenance of the memo, though, is what's the interesting part, is that they they found this in the in Edgar Mitchell's effects after he died. So it wasn't like somebody just kind of you know made this thing up and you know seeded it into the into the zeitgeist it was found on his effect so i still don't know if it's real or not but this is the memo that alleges that there was a i'm going pretty far afield here so you don't yeah. need to comment on this but that alleges that the us government is basically subcontracted the reverse engineering of alleged recovered you know, uap craft and it's you know, there's this Admiral Wilson who was number two at the DIA, and then he became the director of the DIA in no small part because he chose to ignore what was in the memo, if the memo is true. Now, of course, you know Admiral Wilson denies that the memo exists, which it you know or, or is is real. Now, if it were real, that's exactly what he would do anyway. So it's. Yeah, I mean that that's that's the old I can't confirm or deny the former employment of this individual at the Central Intelligence Agency. They're going to say that regardless of whether they work there or not. So it's actually a meaningless statement anyway, isn't it? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But Edgar Mitchell is allegedly where the, you know, where where this memo was discovered when he died. And he, you know, he went out on a he went on a went out on a limb and he yeah. uh, he had some other problems in his life, unfortunately. But we have to respect those people, you know, whether it's the founder of Sony or, or anybody else who's willing to put their name on the, on, you know, on the line and be, you know, risk being criticized for being crazy or whatever. And, and I'm just one of those people who said, no, let's just explore. 
You know, there's a, there's a story about remote viewing where Russell Targan had put off or gone to the the uh, Pentagon to report on their early findings about remote viewing. So this goes back to a story of I may not be recalling it exactly, but uh, the spirit of the story I think is accurate. And that Russell put off. I'm sorry. I'll put off and Russell Targ were doing their early research and gone now to the Pentagon to present about early findings on what would become remote viewing. They may have been calling it remote detecting or remote sensing or whatever the term they had at that time. But they start to present, and one of the people in the audience they're presenting to, and I, if I recall correctly, it was the chief scientist Pentagon or something like that stands up and says, I know what you're talking about. You're talking about ESP. I wouldn't believe it even if it were true. And I always thought that that's the kind of attitude that is preventing us from really exploring the edges of science. And in in a lot of fields of science, medicine in particular, but others too, that seems to be the the predominant attitude, if we can't explain it, then I can't admit that it's a thing. And of course, the more sophisticated the thinkers are, they realize we don't understand how penicillin works. We don't understand how aspirin works. We don't understand how electricity works. Although you know, interesting new theories are coming out, but there's so many things that we don't understand, but we take them for granted. You know, there's technologies that work that we can't explain. Acupuncture, for example. You know, all the major universities have uh, acupuncture in their pain control centers, Johns Hopkins or Harvard or Mayo Clinic, but they don't really understand how acupuncture works, I don't think. It's certainly the dragon fire meridian or whatever is probably not the scientific explanation. Right. And someday we might have a perfectly fine explanation for all of these things, including remote viewing. Probably something along, you know, that will be born out of quantum mechanics. But the fact that you can't explain something doesn't mean that you can't use it as a technology. And that, that's even the same attitude that we see in some of the people who refuse to believe that remote viewing is possible to, you know, bring us full circle to where we started today, which is, you know, if you can't explain it to me, I cannot possibly admit that it's possible. It must be impossible if there's no good scientific explanation. And I said, well, there was no scientific explanation for gravity or magnetism a few thousand years ago, but they both existed. <laughs> so, right. Yeah, yeah I, I think I think just being willing to admit one's ignorance, yeah. right? And you don't have to say, you know, it's I absolutely believe it's true. I think it's just when confronted with something that is unconventional or, right. you know, you put in a paranormal bucket just to kind of deny its existence entirely is, Correct. is, is ignorant. I mean, it's, it's the def very definition of ignorant. It's, I think just ha having people just say that being willing to admit or to have the humility to say that, look, I don't know, but I'm open to understanding things that we can't currently Explain. Like, I personally think this phenomena exists in various forms, and there is a science to explain it. We just don't understand it yet. And science will explain it. And that the same way that when Joseph Lister said, Hey, you know, when I have a fracture and I put a splint on it, and nine times out of time, nine times out of 10, it heals properly. But when it's a compound fracture and the skin is broken, it gets infected, but, you know, it doesn't heal. And he said, well, what if I clean the wound? And what if I use clean linens to wrap it? And what if I wash my hands with carbolic acid before I touch the patient? And he did. And suddenly nine out of 10 of his compound fractures were also healing. And he goes to the Royal College of Surgeons in London and he reports his findings and they laugh him out of the room. And they said, listener, he knows that infection comes from the air. And they laughed him out of the room. And now we know he was right, and he's got a mouthwash named after him. So, his bags too, Lister bags. 
<laughs> like these these old water bikes that the the army would used to use. You go drink out of the Lister bag. Yeah, but there is one area of science which is noticeably different, and that is theoretical physics. I think the theoreticians mm-hmm. are the one group that really gets it. They are doing research into so many things that they cannot easily explain that their concept of possibility for reality, I know that's a lot of kind of awkward wording, but their their possible reality is so much broader than the other scientists that when you say, do you think remote viewing is possible? They say, shit, we've got particles flipping like this faster than the speed of light. Anything's possible. Mm-hmm. These guys are out there. And I believe that those are the exact scientists who are going to come up with the discoveries and the theories that explain remote viewing eventually. I don't think there's anything magical about it. It's just like Arthur C. Clarke said, you know, anything that's advanced enough is indistinguishable from magic. but once that technology advances to the point where we understand it, it ceases to be magic. So that's, that's what I think about. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, David. It was a pleasure to learn about your experiences in remote viewing, as well as the, the events at Sony and their paranormal division. If you enjoyed this video, hit like and subscribe, and I'll see you next time. Thank <laughs> you.